Welcome to episode 55 of Teach Me Tiger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tiger. Teach me, Tiger, how to kiss you. Welcome to Teach Me Tiger. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Melody Starkweather. On the show, we bring in our experty and enthusiastic pals to teach us something. So today I have an expert on being awesome and his biggest enthusiast, which is me. <laughs> my expert today on being awesome is my dad, Justin Starkweather. Kind words. Thank you very much. <laughs> Awesome, clever, handsome. He's a great dad, great grandpa, uh, very creative. What else can I say about you? Uh, it's good. I'm anchored to this chair. I might float away hearing all that stuff. <laughs> and very smart. Did I say that? You're a smart you guy. You said very smart. I'm not even sure it's true. I think it is. I think you get most of your smarts from your mother, honey. <laughs> well, you have a very active imagination. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, you're very creative. I'm not going to tell you all the places it goes either. <laughs> we're going to be talking about your life, and we're going to sort of move from New York City, which is what we covered in the last episode with you, which was number 44. If you haven't listened, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that. It was really delightful. People really enjoyed it. Okay. I had a lot of people come back and say, your dad's so charming. <laughs> So we're going to talk about, we're going to move on from New York City toward the hippie years. We'll see how far we get. We might not quite hit the hippie years today. Uh, the hippie years uh, sort of were kind of in the background for me until I got to Twin Oaks. Right. And so. But that, I don't know. The, Twin Oaks the, might be. If we're going to get to Twin Oaks, there's a lot of stuff in between. Yes. All yeah. the film editing and the puppeteering is before Twin Oaks. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know if we'll get to it today. And the Montessori, too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll see how far we get. If we don't get to the hippie years now, we'll have to do a part three. Okay. Um, before we get to it, how was your week? Do you have any week peaks? Anything good that's happened? Uh, good stuff that's happening. I'm getting stronger. I had a hip replacement, and I feel like I'm getting stronger. I'm going to be able to walk normally eventually and maybe that's even fairly soon i have walked with a cane for about the last five years for one reason or another and i foresee the day when i won't have to at all yeah. so that's a good thing that is a good thing you yep. left me a message the other day saying i'm in my car i got in the engine's running and i'm gonna drive myself for the foreseeable future that's <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. good <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, it's it's now quite comfortable getting into the car more than it was before I had the surgery. So that's good. And this is the third hip surgery, right? This is my third hip 
uh, surgery. The first one was a break when I fell. But I was using the cane for other reasons before that. Yeah. Uh, I had ankle reconstruction, and uh, I started using a cane when I was, you know, in my last stages of that. Eventually, I got to stop using the cane. And uh, then there was a piece of time with no cane, and I fell in the kitchen and broke my hip. And after that, it's been cane and crutches and walkers and whatever ever since. What a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. That's a definite peak. Getting better. So, could I get you to reach into this box? Roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks, reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. Are you a morning person or a night person? You know, it seems to be changing. Oh, really? Mary and I have had the habit of going to bed at 9 o'clock for a very long time. Years. And um, eventually, I found that I would have slept as much as I can by around 4 which is actually seven hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would get up, and then when I began meditating four years ago, that's the first thing I did. But now I'm finding that I'm very, very wakeful if I go to bed at nine. We're still doing that, and I'm having trouble sleeping until maybe 11. And or I get up and I take night nighttime Tylenol to make myself go to sleep, and I get to sleep at 11 or 11.30 or 12.00. And I wake up at three. Oh no! And do my do meditation and drink coffee and uh, eat something, and uh, then I go back to bed and sleep for another couple of hours, and that seems to work fine. But the the point about it that surprises me is that I I seem quite awake until much later than nine o'clock. Right. Even though after supper, I'll sit here and doze in front of the television off and on, in and out, and we'll go to bed at nine and I'll be wide awake. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle this from my wheelhouse, (laughs) which currently is child rearing. When you have a baby, you don't want them to nap too late in the day, dad. So what are you doing? (laughs) You're napping too late in the day. Uh, They say that you shouldn't do that, but actually... If I really feel sleepy at some point in the middle of the day, uh, having gone through the morning that I just described, Mm -hmm. I might still want to have a nap in the middle of the day if I feel sleepy and... uh, But the nap after dinner has got to go. Oh, well, that's (laughs) helpless. I can't do anything about that. So do you find you're productive in that... In that period, sort of in the middle of the night, I'm definitely less productive. Um, No, but I mean when you're awake at three... And you do your meditation, have some coffee. Do you find you're productive in those early hours when you've just woken up? It depends very much upon how well I have slept between 11 and 3. Right. If I really have slept pretty well, I can usually have a good meditation. And if not, my meditation is terrible. And I give up shortly. I don't, I don't, I don't continue a terrible meditation. I just stop. Can I ask you, are you doing guided meditation or are you just free, uh, no. free ball in it? Um, well, we're kind of getting into something related to the spiritual group. Let, let me uh, start in about that and we'll, we'll get okay. over, we'll cover stuff. Icebreakers. 
Uh, so this this began while I was still in Camelot and before I got hurt. I picked up a book called In Search of the Miraculous, and it's one of the formative books in my life, along with a couple of others. Do you remember? Uh, but, uh, do you it, remember who it's by? Yes, it's by a man called P. D. Uspensky, and he was a pupil of Gurdjieff. Uh, Gurdjieff is quite well known in spiritual circles. People who are interested in studying deep personal meaning and spirituality, usually people know Gurdjieff, and very often they have heard about Uspensky or this book, In Search of the Miraculous. I found it to be a very, very good understanding about how people work. What What is personality and what is real you? And there's a difference. Uh, one of the main themes of the book, which I take away from it permanently, is that you're born with something that you have forever, but it becomes overlaid with experiences, some of which your parents teach you, mm-hmm. and some of which you just gather as you go forward. And they're not all good, and they're not all constructive and helpful in in guiding you into the the way you are based upon your your essence. But if you have really good understanding parents who guide you toward how you relate socially and how you deal with problems and how you use your thinker, this is this is all stuff that you learn, and it is the way that you relate to the world. You, your essence doesn't relate to the world. It's deep you. Mm-hmm. But it is deep you, and it's there, and it's important, and it's it's something to cherish. So if you don't ever pay attention to it, you forget about it, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. And in meditation, sometimes you can discover it, and it's it's good. I, I I forgot to tell you, Chris, my husband, Chris, who he sometimes co-hosts the podcast, actually, he has been doing meditation. He's been doing guided meditations with an app often twice a day now. Uh-huh. And he's really seeing huge benefits from it. There are huge benefits. There is no doubt whatsoever. We've been calling him New Chris. <laughs> New Chris. <laughs> or, or Real Chris. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I can understand that completely. So let's let's go back to okay. the origin of all of that. Yep. Uh the book, well, I guess you could call it kind of a text of this group. The person that uh showed me the book found the group somehow. I'm not sure how she found it. She was my girlfriend at the time. And she was going to the group and so she took me to the group. And I was quite taken with the things that they talked about, how to become more alert to yourself, to what's really happening within you, and how to be better in some ways than you are and acquire personal ways of being that are beneficial. So many of the things that come out of the book uh, seem quite wide of the mark, imaginary, not not useful. Mm-hmm. But some of these basic things were really profound and helpful to me. The consideration of God struck me also as useful. I'm 
I haven't been a particularly spiritual person up until that time, which is years ago now. But they taught that God is the same for everybody, just has different names. Mm -hmm. God has different names. And people quibble over that. God makes man. Man figures out all these little reasons to have your notion of God better than somebody else's notion. And people are quibbling over their dogma, their particular dogma. Mm -hmm. It seems to me all, almost all organized religions have, have this, this uh, particular feature that crops up where other, other people aren't as good as we are because they don't think like us. Mm -hmm. And in extreme examples, they hate people. Mm -hmm. In this group, there's a strong element of Islam. And Islam at its core is a beautiful, beautiful, profound and gentle religion. And people who practice it practice the best virtues taught by Christianity. So what what's the name of this group? Um, it was called an Uspensky group. The man who uh, directed it had been a student or a compatriot of Uspensky uh -huh. and talked about uh, Uspensky from time to time. He called him Mr. Upensky. He was, he was a Russian man named Rabinek. And um, so the group tried to teach us meditation. And here we go back to this again. Mm -hmm. And remember, I'm still in Camelot, haven't gotten injured yet. And um, we're, we're being taught meditation. The, and this group had affiliation with people in other parts of the world. In England, where the uh, Gurdjieff people were still practicing and Uspensi's acolytes were also practicing. And these they extended feelers into um, Oriental religion and India, especially India. And so it was possible for Mr. Rabinek to arrange for somebody to come and teach us meditation. And everybody, they, they, they tried to get us all to meditate and they had us, they wanted us to meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night mm -hmm. and uh, to do it with a mantra and just let any intrusive thought, just drop it, let it go. Don't, don't start working it and blaming yourself over it and seeing how to overcome it. All mm -hmm. that just, that's just bullshit. It doesn't help you meditate one bit. You just drop it and go back to your alertness to your breath. Mm -hmm. Your breath is the first thing that you have when you come out of the womb. And when you're in the womb, you have nothing but essence and your nourishment that you get from your, your mother. Mm -hmm. When you come out, the first thing that begins to start you down the road of being a person is your breath. So uh, you just breathe and use your mantra and try and meditate. Well, I couldn't do it. I had so many thoughts revolving in my head and so many anxieties and wishes and experiences that went over and over, round and around in my head. I could not meditate one bit. Then the group decided that they were going to be able to do dervish turning. And again, somebody was contacted. A man came from Istanbul, and his name was Mr. Rizui. 
Mr. Rizui. Oh, and by, by, the, by the way, I should say a, a man came from India, too. The Chankasharya came. And he gave me a little ceremony for everybody who wanted to meditate. And he whispered in their ear what their mantra should be. And he gave me a mantra. It didn't make any difference. I couldn't meditate. So that, that was the end of that. But mm-hmm. then when Mr. Rizui came, the whole group participated in making our circumstances good. Everything had to be absolutely pristine clean. We cleaned up the walls, repainted the whole interior. This is a rented loft. And we completely refurbished it, redid the floor, made it, made it smooth and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And redid all the walls, the woodwork, everything was done. All the men participated in this. I remember a work painting something and standing back and looking at it and thinking about, about it. And the teacher came along and he said, okay, that, that's enough. Uh, you, you go back, you do the work, do the work. That's what's happened. That's what's supposed to be happening here. Mm-hmm. And I was annoyed by that comment, but it was so true. You know, I was just standing back and fantasizing. Right. So anyway, so that's what the men did. And the women in a traditional non-feminist way did sewing. They sewed the costumes, which were authentic. Materials were brought and designs were employed and everybody wore an Islamic garment to do this dervish turning. When Mr. Rizui arrived, the men had made special little platforms. Well, I call them platforms, but what they were was a piece of plywood about an inch thick and maybe three by three feet. And in the middle of it was a peg. It was called a nail. It wasn't really a nail. Thank God. It was a little smoother than a nail. But you, you learn to do the turning by putting this, putting your foot down with this thing uh, penetrating the crack between your big toe and your next toe. Oh. And you sort of pedaled your way around and you had to hold your arms in a certain position. Your left arm was held up like this and you looked at your fingers, your fingertips. So with um, your fingers like touching, it was to have it was to have the angle of your your head be erect mm-hmm. and not self-absorbed. Although self-absorbency, in a good sense, is what was aimed at. Right. So anyway, we worked practicing turning with our bare feet on this thing called a nail. Almost everybody blistered. Many people bled. It was it was very very hard. And actually, I think we could have learned to do it without the damn nail, just doing the motion. We could have learned to do it. But going through that suffering, I think, was meant to be part of the experience, Hmm. to to know the value of what you were doing. You're sacrificing comfort. You're going through pain in order to learn something profound. And it was profound. Can I ask you in doing I know you were more a modern dancer but in doing ballet did you did your feet bleed did you wear point shoes no men don't wear point shoes oh only, only women only ballerinas wear point shoes okay men men wear ballet slippers i see except for character dancing and you then you have what you call character shoes and people who go to ballet auditions or show auditions always wear character shoes because you never know what you're going to be asked to do 
So you hadn't already been toughened up <laughs> uh, not in that way? The, not for the nail. And it actually had nothing to do with ballet at all. It certainly had to do with moving your body. And we, we worked for months to develop the ability to turn, to hold our arms up, to hold our carriage properly, and to turn, and not so much to overcome dizziness, but to eventually dizziness stopped being as important as it was in the beginning, hmm. when you got quite dizzy and felt like you needed to throw up. Some people did throw up. I was going to ask, was there barfing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was barfing. But uh, <laughs> eventually we got to the point where we had ceremonies, dervish turning ceremonies. And we would go around, people, a circle would form, and the whole circle is moving counterclockwise, and every, every element in the circle is a person, and they are also moving counterclockwise as they turn. And uh, the costumes that we wore flared up, and it became quite beautiful, and we had those long fez hats, fezes. It was very, very much like was done in Istanbul, in the Mevlevi sect. There are many sects of people who do dervish turning, and the Mevlevis were the only sect that absolutely would not do it publicly for money. Mm. The government wanted everybody to turn publicly and attract tourism. Right. The Mevlevi wouldn't do it. It's for spiritual purposes, not for financial gain. Right. And so they were persecuted in Istanbul. And uh, so this man coming to teach us to do it, he, he had the idea that he was, he was extending the tradition somewhere where it was safe. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you that I absolutely adored it. The feeling of turning, once you have it so that it's completely dependable, you're not falling down, you're not getting dizzy, you're in the middle of a cylinder, and this, you're going around inside this cylinder of reality, so it's all a blur. It's a blur of colors and faces, and inside is you, and you are very peaceful. Hmm. And it is a very profound feeling, and it's it, it worked for me much better than meditation, which I could not do at all. But it was, it was a very important part of my life. And I, it, from that time, I, I became what I think would be fair to call a spiritual person, a person with a, a spiritual orientation toward life and toward experience and toward other people and hmm. so forth. So anyway, I didn't learn how to meditate until I read Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, and that was the second year we were in Nicaragua. Oh, wow. So that's more recent. You went Much down there. Much more recent. That's what? four years ago. Okay. Five years ago. Interesting. So how old were you when you were initially trying to learn to meditate and couldn't do it? I must have been, let's see, I think I must have been about uh, 30, okay. 32, 33, somewhere right around there. So it took a little over 50 years to yeah. meditate. Yeah. Yeah. And would you spin alone or is it always with a group? 
It's always with a group. Interesting. And that's part of it. You feel, you feel yourself as being part of something that belongs to everybody and you belong to everybody. And it's very moving. And also the ceremony when we're turning would stop at certain points and Arabic music would play while we turned. And then it would stop, then there'd be a pause, and then the shaman or the sheikh or whatever you would call him. It would usually be the leader mm-hmm. of the group or somebody who was a kind of a main acolyte assistant to the leader. And there would be prayers. There would be prayers in Arabic, and you would hold yourself in certain positions to absorb the prayer and we would uh, stop and all everybody would sort of pull away from the circle and be against the wall and sometimes you needed to lean on the wall but at moments like that i found invariably i wept deep weeping sobbing so it was terribly important to me and it remains a very important experience in my life absolutely hmm. It's interesting because I think of you as, I don't know if disdain is the right word, but for lack of a better word, having some disdain for organized religion, like you, you, you had no interest in going to church and stuff growing up. Oh, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. No. I, I think the number of people who really go to church and get a spiritual experience out of it is... Such people are always present in any church service, but they're not the majority. Mm -hmm. I think those are special people who probably would do much better in a group like I was in. Right. But they don't know about it and they don't have it. They get what they can out of Presbyterianism or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest of the people who are not really having a spiritual experience are having a social experience. Right. They go to church to be seen and to talk to other people who are having a social experience and to reassure themselves that they're practicing religion. Right. (laughs) It's basically empty. And I think sometimes they actually go to make business connections. I I, I think a lot of people do attend church for the community. Yeah. Um, I I think that's what it is for a lot of people. So anyway, during all the time that was going on, I was also going to acting class and making rounds, that is going from agent to agent to casting offices and whatever I could, dropping off resumes and saying, hi, my name is John Starkweather and uh, if you got anything for me, (laughs) and uh, it's always uh, don't call us, we'll call you. It's (laughs) that kind of thing. And uh out of it, I would very rarely come up with an audition, but I usually did well in my auditions, but that didn't mean I always got a job. In fact, I hardly ever got a job. I got an understudy role in an off-Broadway show, but it was temporary. I was replacing the permanent understudy. <laughs> and also during that whole time when I had left Camelot and hadn't really come to something to think of as my future. Mm -hmm. A woman in acting class that coincidentally had been at Bennington College when I had been there, and I didn't know her then, and she was quite a dancer. She performed with uh, Martha Graham, and then she stopped. 
she became a party girl, danced on pianos and slept with everybody. I slept with her once and I asked her, I said, I, I knew what kind of a history she had. And I said, how many people do you think you've slept with? She said, oh, thousands. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she was a friend. She was a good friend. And so during all this time, I'm looking for something to do. And she said, you know, some people who leave the theater wind up going into film editing. It's something that you can get into. Mm-hmm. She said, if you just go to a uh, a studio where they're making films and you sweep the floor and offer to do simple odd jobs that you're capable of doing just because you're alert, you'll pick up some experience which will enable you to get a job at the bottom of the ladder in a real film studio. And that turned out to be true. I'm not sure where it was I started, but I remember hanging trims. Trims are what the editor makes when he's finding exactly where to cut something into something else. It might just be a little tiny piece that's come out of the movement. Mm -hmm. So he's picking the exact frame where he's going to make the cut. And we're talking about the early 60s. So when we're talking about editing film and and cutting film, we're talking about actually physically cutting strips of film. Yes, absolutely. That was how it was done historically up until that point. That's just a disclaimer for the millennials who are listening. So I learned how to sort trims and hang them up on the little rack that was made for hanging trims and how to sweep the floor. And uh, I learned a few things. Oh, and I, I got to practice making splices so that when it came time to try for a little job, I became a shipper at a film place called Televideo. I don't remember all the accounts they had, but they made commercials, Mm -hmm. as I did later on, too. And one of their accounts was Cool Whip. I remember that. Cool Whip. Yeah, I had to uh, ship things, and I had to receive shipments. And sometimes I had to sync track to film. And uh, I found that to be very difficult. It just isn't as simple as it seems later on in puppetry. Are you talking about syncing like yes. vocal tracks to yeah. the actual right. moving picture? Oh, music is a different matter entirely. You right. just lay the music in so that the beginning and end of it coincides with excitement or lack of excitement right. in the action. Right. Um, whatever. But... Uh, Yes, uh, it's important that when someone's mouth is mo- when an actor's mouth is moving, the sound of the words fit the lips, mm-hmm. fit the movement of the lips, and uh, that was at that point a little too subtle for me. I, I I couldn't do it very well, and I I got a rebuke about that. But I I was able to keep my job, and in the course of it, I got much better at splicing handling film. I could tell what the head of the film was and what the tail was by looking at the image. And I could tell which was the base and which was the emulsion of the film and this kind of thing. So I acquired some experience and I became very aware that that film is carried around different places in cans. And there are people who work for film studios whose only job really is to carry cans around in the city. Mm -hmm. But they get to learn, too. If you start out carrying cans, you get to handle film from time to time, and you learn. And so 
it goes like that. I pieced together an experience that eventually enabled me to have to work in a few different places. But I wound up at a film editorial service called Jeff, the Jeff Dell Film Service. And Jeff was a guy who you wouldn't have imagined had any talent or feel <laughs> for the action of a film, for the drama of it, or for the, for the sense of it. Before he got into film editing, Jeff made his living cleaning toilets and airplanes. And somehow, somebody got him into film editing, and he became a really good editor. And he teamed up with a buddy from his old days, I think another toilet man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the other guy had connections at laboratories, film laboratories. Okay. A connection at a film laboratory is worth gold, especially in the uh, commercial production business because you're always working on a deadline. The laboratories are terribly busy. Film production is underway in the city of New York on all sides, and uh, the laboratories are just inundated with stuff, and you want to get your stuff out of the lab fast. And so you do expediting. You go and you scold the people who haven't got your film ready yet, and you remind them of their promises, mm -hmm. and you remind them that they get their business from you, and that might be withheld, and you threaten them. You do, And I was an expediter. That's what I did at Televideo. Went and threatened the... I, I, oh, I was a terrible expediter. Threatening people did not come naturally to <laughs> yeah. me. From Televideo, I worked for a couple of other small companies, wanted production. Uh, the guy had the account of Pampers, and I participated in a shoot where we had to take pictures of a baby. And uh, that's that's usually problematic. Babies don't necessarily behave the way you want at all. And right. they're, they're uncomfortable in strange circumstances. Bright lights frighten them sometimes. But I got some production experience. And I wound up working for this guy, Jeff Dell. And he had enormous accounts. Jeff had the Johnson & Johnson account, the Kool-Aid account, Shell Oil, Black Lama Mink, Rally Car Wax. Oh, I can't think of them all. Lots and lots. And he was connected to a production company whose name escapes me at the moment. But all of the production went through this one company. And they worked for advertising agencies. So you have the advertising agency uh -huh. gets the account. Yeah. Say it's Shell Oil. And they have somebody who designs a campaign. And they make commercials. And they give the production of the commercial to somebody like Horn Griner. That was the name of the company that Jeff was associated with, Jeff Dell. So Horn Griner would take all the storyboards and so forth. And they would hire the actors. And they would rent the camera equipment and the lighting and whatever. And they probably owned some of it, too. Very important professional level equipment that produced high quality film. And then they would send the dailies to the lab and the lab would direct the dailies and make a print. And this would be a, a print that the editors would work with. The original material would have a copy made that was just for making more original material. It was called an inter, internegative. It was a positive image that was made from the original film, and it was orange-colored. And it was very precious, because if the original film got damaged or anything, you could reproduce it again from right. the internegative. 
So all of this was done. And at Jeff Dell's, I became an assistant editor and I worked for eight other editors. I handled all the internegative and the original cutting and I did all the syncing up. So we made a lot of commercials and I was there for three years and I enjoyed handling the film. I enjoyed everything about filmmaking except the pressure. And it was horrific. The people from Horn Griner were leaning on the editors. The editors were leaning on me. Um, and sometimes I wound up relating to Horn Griner and I got leaned on straight away too. Uh, they would come into my room and watch what I was doing to prepare something that they were then going to look at with the editor. So I learned, basically I learned all about editing. And that's when I made that little film that you saw called I Will. Mm -hmm. Jeff was very good to me. He loaned me a camera and I went out on the street and shot footage of graffiti, footage of people behaving in ways that interested me. And I was extremely interested in the peacefulness that people can have mm -hmm. and the irritability and rushing life that most people do have mm -hmm. and making a contrast of it. So that was my little film project. Jeff loaned me his personal camera. It was a scoopic. And I went out and shot all this stuff. Dad, do you so, mind if I share that film on the Patreon? So patreon.com slash teach me tiger podcast. Share the film? Yeah. You have a copy of the film. I have a digital copy. But it's in terrible shape. It's red, as I recall. I don't think well, so. Well, yes. I mean, I think the music track is still, it's done with a, music track by a group called Quicksilver Messenger Service, mm -hmm. and they didn't last very long, but they did a cut called Fresh Air, and I cut that film using Fresh Air. Mm -hmm. be sharing that video to our patreon so head on over to patreon.com slash teach me tiger podcast to get it you remember ellen siegel a dancer that i knew in my acting class i was going to acting classes and ellen mentioned that i might uh, be able to get into film editing and we talked a bit about that and so I was doing, I was trying to get into film editing and trying different things. And then one day, Ellen said to me, you know, Bill Baird is casting people for a show that's going to happen at the World's Fair. And um, he, he likes dancers. Bill Baird is a puppeteer, as many people always used to know, and may, most people have forgotten by now. <laughs> but he was, in his time, Bill Baird was famous, Bill and Cora Baird. And uh, there were some good connections there. Cora Baird was in the Graham Company when it was very young and married Bill Baird, the puppeteer, and they were puppeteers together. And that might be one of the reasons Bill favored dancers. Right. He liked Ellen very much. She was quite a pretty woman. Anyway, Ellen had been rehearsing at Bill's studio in Greenwich Village and invited me to come along and meet Bill 
and maybe I'd be able to be considered for some employment, which was going to be good. It was going to be well paid, and it was going to last for two different summers during the World's Fair, which was over two years. So I went, and it turned out that uh, Bill was right. Having some notion about how your body moves helps you do puppet movements, although you do them with strings coming, coming down from a height. But even so, you, you kind of get the hang of it better, I think. So you were doing more like marionette-style puppets were, as opposed uh, to... Yeah, they were okay. marionette. Well, actually, in the show, there were both hand puppets and shadow puppets and marionettes. It was basically all kinds of puppets. So we rehearsed a bit, and I, I did get a job, of course. The show was quite an interesting sort of thing to do as a trade show. It was called the Chrysler Show Go Round, and it was based upon a huge turntable that had four different stages on it, and each stage represented a part of a show. And after a 15-minute part, the stage would revolve a quarter turn, and the next segment would turn up in the audience. Well, there were four audiences, so at any given moment, there were four different little theaters watching one of those segments, and then all of them would advance one notch every 15 minutes. Uh-huh. So this involved a lot of puppeteers, um, because every segment had something going on. The first segment had an announcer who um, introduced the show and then introduced the first puppet, who was a carburetor of uh, obviously sort of a mock-up carburetor that could be a puppet and kind of jolly speaking thing. So was this all sort of car-themed? Because it was the Chrysler Chrysler show, yes. Yeah, okay. So uh, all the puppets were car parts. Oh. (laughs) And um, so it turned out that one of the announcers, there were several because this was going on all day and into the evening, and one person couldn't do it that whole time. So there were about, I think there were four different announcers taking a spell and uh, getting some time off during the course of the day and four different puppet crews. And I think there were four or five or maybe six people in a crew. But it was it was really interesting to do it. And there a lot of things were happening at the same time. I was going to acting class. I was doing dervish turning. And I met a guy... Uh, who was a sculptor who had worked for Bill helping to make puppets. And he was in the show, and his Uh name was Harry Browser. And Harry was kind of looking for a place to live. And I was getting out of my apartment on 92nd Street, where I had roomed with Gene Gebauer, Uh another show dancer. Gene, who lost all of the clothes. That's right. Gene, who lost all the clothes. Harry uh, and I took up an apartment on 2nd Avenue, And coincidentally, it turned out that one of the announcers uh, for the show go-round named Dick Higgs lived in an apartment also rent-controlled directly across from the building I lived in. Okay. A very curious coincidence. And Bill, what happened with Dick Higgs was an interesting story. He was a very good-looking guy. Uh, He was from Iowa, and he looked like one of those corn-fed Iowa boys with a big smile. And uh, quite a good-looking guy, tall, 
very masculine looking. He got a ton of work as an announcer. He was working in the show. He did commercials. He had about three commercials running at a time. He was getting rich and he was living in an apartment that cost $24 a month. (laughs) He amassed a very large fortune and decided, well, he's going to make it bigger, put it into the market as an investment. And he lost it all in a flash. Oh, no. And I don't know whatever happened after that. But anyway, the puppeteering was just for two summers. So uh, it was fun to do the show. Uh, and the puppeteers were interesting. I fell in love with one of the lady puppeteers for a while. And she had the interesting name of Leilani. She had been born in Hawaii. So during the time when, when we were together, Leilani and I, I took her out to visit my my dad and his wife. And when I told my dad what her name was, he quipped right away, oh, her mother must have been frightened by Bing Crosby. This joke might not carry. See, you didn't, you didn't get it. Uh, Bing Crosby used to sing a song that went something like this, sweet Leilani. Leilani. The beautiful flower. (laughs) So he was a crooner, of course, and this was a very popular song for a while. So Leilani's mother must have fallen in love with Bing Crosby. That was the joke. (laughs) And I think Leilani probably heard it lots of times. She she didn't uh, burst into laughter when my dad said this. It was sort of a stupid thing for him to say, actually. (laughs) Might have been insulting. Anyway, we would do six shows in a row. Each one's 15 minutes, right? So Mm -hmm. that would be an hour and a half working, and then we'd have an hour and a half off while other crews took over. And in the gaps, we did stuff like play chess and talk to each other, and I met a number of puppeteers who became famous, uh, well, famous in puppetry, and to some degree famous internationally. Uh, One of them was Jerry Nelson, who's a very quiet guy, uh, he dressed sort of like a really intelligent hippie. He had quite a lot of panache in the way he dressed. And he always looked a little bit off, you know, like maybe this guy's sort of a hippie guy, but he always really looked good. And I never got to know Jerry very well. He was quite a taciturn sort of a guy, quiet. And he was married to a woman who was also a puppeteer. And she was on my shift. And... Uh, I forget her first name, but her last name was Jolly. And they had a little girl uh, who had problems of some sort. She wasn't supposed to live a full life. It was very sad. Anyway, so that was Jerry and his wife. And so anyway, at the time of the Chrysler show go round, Jim Henson didn't have any success with his Muppets at that time. He may have been thinking about it, yeah. getting it started. I don't know, but... Jerry went straight from from there into the Muppets, and he operated one of the one of the Muppet characters for the rest of his life. Oh wow! And I didn't ever realize that Jerry Nelson was known beyond puppetry circles until one year, somewhere between five and ten years ago. All the famous people that had died in the course of the year came up at the year's end. Jerry Nelson was in the list. He had died, and they listed him among the famous people huh. who had passed away. Would he have? Would the puppeteers for the individual Muppets? Would they also be the voice of that character? Like, would he be known for his voice as that character? Yes, I see. Yes. 
somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that she turns out to be someone who'll watch over me. So we we had a lot of fun doing the shows, and uh, and we had fun at the fair too. During our off times, we could go around and see all the other things that were happening at the fair. And it was it was quite a big fair. I never saw all of it, but the Pepsi show was a ride through a big long tunnel with all kinds of animated creatures and things and people. So anyway, that was that show. And during during the second year of the show, a little notice appeared on a bulletin board in the green room that we all had there in the middle of the turntable. And the notice offered employment to puppeteers uh, at a marionette theater in Pittsburgh and for a traveling show. And I was I was really enjoying the puppetry and decided I would explore it a little bit more. And I, mm-hmm. I sought out the woman who was offering this employment. Her name was Margot Lovelace. And what a name. I got, I got some work uh, working for the Lovelace Marionette Theater in Pittsburgh. And that place was an absolute enchantment made to please and fascinate children. You walk into it and the, the, it was raked so that children could look over each other's shoulders at auditoriums that often are. Right. And uh, from the ceiling hung all sorts of fairy lights and interesting objects and uh, creatures and people on trapezes and stars and moons. And it was just, it was, a f- and of course, it was dim for the show. Mm-hmm. And all of these things lit up. And children who walked in would all of a sudden, they'd grow quiet and be looking around. If you watch the kids come in, and I used to peeking through the curtain. Yeah. And uh, it was a, it was a great fun show. The guy who opened it was Margot's son, Dave, and he often opened the shoot. Well, the first thing that would happen would be he'd wiggle the curtain, and the kids would all say, "Oh, oh, look at that! <laughs> oh, something, you know, something's there." And then he would poke his puppet out of the crack between the two curtains that were hanging together, and it would be a, a little dog, perhaps. And it, the dog would start talking to the children. And one of the first things that Dave always said, he, he would always say, Oh, all the girls are handsome and the boys are pretty. And the <laughs> kids all took it to be a, a case of adults getting it wrong. You right, see. right, right. And they would howl with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> it was just wonderful. It, we had tremendous fun giving these puppet shows to the children. And I love to entertain the children. This came out later when I was a Montessori teacher. And that was the only thing I did well, was entertain the children. <laughs> when we, we had that part of the lesson. So we had a, a really good time doing these shows. And then we went on the road. We did a Christmas show in a mall, Dayton, Ohio. And Margot one day offered to have me meet Jim Henson, whom she knew he was a uh, somebody she knew from her puppetry activities, and uh, he hadn't done anything yet with Sesame Street or the Muppets, or maybe it was in the works. I don't know, but I had no idea who Jim Henson was, and I didn't give a hoot. And I had some things I wanted to do with my free time, and I declined an opportunity to meet Jim Henson. Stupid. 
turned out, <laughs> uh, because of course there was Jerry Nelson who wound up working in the Muppets. Yeah. And, uh, there was somebody else too. Tried to think of this man's name. He became a producer for Jim Henson. And he organized and produced, I think he was the main guy in back of a show called Fraggle Rock. Which was big for a while. I loved that show. Oh, did you? Yes. Oh, how about that? <laughs> uh, but anyway, this, this guy organized Fraggle Rock. And there were some great stories about him. He was a mountain climber and told a story about having to get caught in a storm, a snowstorm, while climbing a, a mountain. And he had to stand on a ledge, an icy ledge as it became, overnight. Oh, wow. Because he was, he was not safe to try to descend or go up. So he just stood on this ledge overnight in the cold and that's the kind of mountain climber he was. He was quite a guy. Anyway, those were my puppeteering days. And Margot wanted badly to keep me on. I was a pretty good puppeteer. And I also made a try at making a puppet. And I learned how to do that and made one head that came out really nicely. But, you know, at that time, when Margot offered me work, I had already done some film editing. Mm-hmm. And I knew that you could eventually make quite a lot of money as a film editor. Uh-huh. And I thought that I would be good at that. And it turned out I was. But I was also good at puppeteering and I, I loved it. And so I really had to choose between two things that I liked, but one one had the lure of money. Right. So that's where I went. And I never got back to puppeteering after that, although I always had fond memories. <laughs> Anyway, to get back to Jeff Dell, I had read a a book about Montessori, and boy, was I impressed. I love children, Mm -hmm. you know that, Mm -hmm. and I thought, this is for me. This does something wonderful for children. It really helps them, and their development is so precious, and this is something that could, I could do this. I decided I wanted to learn what I had to learn and become a Montessori teacher. And I told Jeff I was going to leave. He was very upset. He offered to double my salary, which would have brought me to the level of a full editor without still being a full editor. But I would have been if I'd stayed there. I would have become an editor. I was just so useful to Jeff. He just didn't want me to leave. He begged me to stay. And we had multiple conversations as the time for me to actually leave got closer and closer. And so finally I did leave. And I didn't until I had secured a place for myself at the Montessori Training Center in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. a place called Raven Hill. And it was, it was run, it was actually a convent. And it was what the convent did as a service to humanity. They trained Montessori teachers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the Mother Superior there was a Montessori teacher who I heard her say in a public address that she had her diploma from the hands of Maria Montessori herself. Mother Isabel had her diploma from the hands of Maria Montessori herself. This spans a huge time. 
Mother Isabel was very old. Right. And she adored children beyond anything I've ever seen. It makes me feel like crying to talk about her. During part of the time when I was there, uh, she always gave the theory lectures, the lectures in the practical handling of the materials and points about how to do it properly. Those, those, those were the backbone of the course. And Mother Isabel did the theory lectures. And I remember during, during the time, child abuse was becoming known. If you can imagine it, there was a time no one knew that there was such a thing as child abuse. And when Like they didn't know what was going on or didn't understand that it was wrong. What do you mean? How people knew that it happened, but and a lot of times people knew that it was wrong, but the people who did it probably excused it for themselves mm -hmm. so that either they didn't think it was wrong or they thought it was wrong and they thought, well, I really need to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. But it it's sort of the subject of child abuse was in the news in the same way that the Me Too movement mm -hmm. began emerging in the yeah. news. Yeah. So as Mother Isabel began hearing these stories about things that happened to little children, she was so upset. She, she broke down crying. And uh, I, I just really loved her. She was a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, as the only man in the whole course, the year I was there, there were other years when men came, but I was the only man the time I was there for the two years. And it became my job to drive Mother Isabel when she would go and speak to people who were interested in Montessori. And uh, I got to know her a bit from, from that. And it turned out later on, after I got my degree, I sort of fell right into a job in Connecticut near my father's house. And uh, everything just sort of fell into place for me to, to teach at the Broad River School. So I didn't really have to do a lot of job applications, mm -hmm. but I did a few. And when people heard that I was coming from Raven Hill, I was taught by Mother Isabel. It cut a huge amount of weight. Her reputation in the Montessori community is international. Did you that take from your Montessori training lessons, you know, into your everyday life? Like, did you find that that was impactful in how you? led your life or was it um to some extent yeah yes to some extent can you sum up sort of the main philosophy of montessori teaching yes children want to be grown up they want to be you they want the power that you have they want the skill that you have and the knowledge that you have and if you give them tools to expand themselves and build the person that they will become mm -hmm. they'll eat it up and I'm sure that this is true. Historically, Maria Montessori taught children who came from a slum, who had nothing. And all the Montessori materials with their colors and materials did, all the materials contain a lesson of some sort. Mm -hmm. And for these children who never had anything, they didn't have toys. The Montessori materials were extremely absorbing. Not so much in the 20th century and in Western civilization where children 
are given so much. Mm -hmm. Most children these days have a toy box full of toys. We have so and, many. And uh, every kind of thing. So the, the Montessori material, a simple example would be the Pink Tower, which is a series of, of cubes, concentric cubes in descending size. So that you start with something that high, that fat at the bottom, mm -hmm. and the descending size winds up with a tiny little cube at the top. Well, of course, a child could be interested in putting each cube on so that it fits exactly. Maybe it lines up so one side is flush, or maybe each one is in the center with the corners related appropriate to the other corners below it mm -hmm. on the on every every step of the way up. That would be an interesting task for a child who is learning something about shapes and space and positioning. There's a lesson in there, but so often it is viewed as a big fat nothing to a modern child. Right. One of the really important things in the Montessori method is practical life experiences. For tiny children, you take a child under three, two-and-a-half-year-old child, does not know how to do so many things that mommy does for the child mm -hmm. because the child will make a mess if they do it themselves. So one of the basic materials in the practical life exercises is water, learning how to handle the pouring of water from one pitcher to another pitcher. And when the child first starts to do it, the pitcher that has the water is held very carefully right over the other pitcher and then tipped very carefully so it starts to pour. Mm -hmm. But as they get good at it, the teacher shows them how you can raise the pouring pitcher higher and higher. And isn't that interesting? Let's see how high we can do it and mm -hmm. hit, the, hit the bottom one. And children acquire tremendous skill doing that. By the way, it increases their fine grip so that when it comes to writing, they've got a head start that way. Many, many of the practical life exercises involve things that happen around the home, such as dusting, polishing. They learn how to handle their clothing. They learn zippers and buttons and ties with materials that are provided in the classroom so that they gain a level of independence that is beyond what they had before. And this starts, you know, very young. So it gives a child a level of self-confidence right. and skill and knowledge in their skill that is wonderful. So it's, it's very much about starting off with the ability to know that you can do things. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely believe in the Montessori method completely. So I've always thought that you're very good with children. And I remember talking to you about it once. And you said, well, people say that, but I'm not particularly good with children. I just pay attention to them and treat them with respect and as if what they have to say is just as important as anyone else. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's well, right. that's... That's, that's, a, that's an essential. I mean, that is a skill <laughs> to talk to children it is an that essential. way. I mean, as somebody who always baby talks to children, who, who has a special way of, of speaking to a child who is five or six or seven, 
instead of just honoring the fact that they are a person and they can understand what you say and just say it. And of course, they're not as developed intellectually as grown-ups. And they're not as developed personally as grown-ups. But they have everything that grown-ups start out with. And they deserve complete respect for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I just uh, I think that that is an important ingredient for any teacher or any parent. Did you learn that from Montessori, though? Or was that always your attitude towards children? I think it was always my attitude. But it's certainly part of Montessori. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. So you are just good with children then? (laughs) Well, I'm good in some ways. Uh, When it comes to discipline, I'm not so good. I'm never sure about just how to redirect a child's attention toward the positive aspect of the behavior Mm -hmm. instead of quashing the negative aspect. Right. That's tricky. I couldn't get that very well sorted in my dealings with children. I think in our family life, I never really had that down. Uh, Your mother was better with that. I mean, in terms of of actual disciplining the kids, your mom was right on top of it. And she exhibited immediate anger. And that's the main thing. Children don't like it when mommy's mad at me. They just don't. You don't have to beat the crap out of them at all. And your mother certainly knew that. But Mm -hmm. when she was mad, she was mad. And I think it's good that that enables the children to see that having a temper is okay. Mm -hmm. And you should grow up being able to have a temper. That was something that was missing in my upbringing. And it's been part of my ongoing development. You mean your parents didn't have tempers? Oh, no, no. You weren't allowed to have a temper. No, I'm not supposed to express anger. And it's part of a false religious view. So, okay, so you did the Montessori training. You were teaching in Connecticut. What happened with Montessori? Well, I discovered that as much as I loved children, I loved entertaining them. I loved being kind to them. I loved honoring the fact that they're people with equal value. All of that fit my notions of relating to children. Um, But being firm, when a child is misusing the Montessori materials, firmly helping them do better Mm -hmm. was not easy for me. And I didn't do it very well. And I, I was troubled by all these thoughts. I mean, you know, somebody who has a lot of extraneous stuff going around in their head mm-hmm. is not going to be a good Montessori teacher. A Montessori teacher needs to be really present. Right. Very seriously present. And I was not. That was the main problem. And I realized it rather soon into my work as a Montessori teacher but I, it was, it had become my way of making a living, although it was a very poor living. It was very poorly paid. Very, very poorly paid. Not enough to live on. Mm-hmm. And I had to do film editing on the side in order to make a little money. 
and that also wasn't going well. I was I went through a period when I was a Montessori teacher working. I went through a period where I was quite troubled by everything. Nothing was going really well. I was not working very well as a film editor because I wasn't concentrating very well. And I messed up some film for a couple of people. I feel terrible about that, but it happened. And it's because I, was, I, I wasn't concentrating. I built myself as somebody who could work with basic original material and do A and B roles that involved paying very, very good attention to exactly what you're doing. But my mind would be going off and why couldn't I get a girlfriend? What am I going to do about Montessori? Wouldn't it be better if I went back to New York and see if Jeff would still give me a job? And all of this kind of thing was going in my head. And I was living in a communal household for a while during all of this time. It was a very upsetting time. The house contained a couple of interesting people. One was another Montessori teacher named Molly Eagleson, whose family I had stayed with in Philadelphia. So she was one of the people in the household. Um, there was a guy in the household who always dressed like a salesman. He was a young guy, and he always sort of had flashy clothes, and he did a lot of drugs. He did cocaine mm-hmm. and other stuff, LSD, so forth. And he started to sell it, and he got caught. Oh, no. Yeah. And he went to trial and was convicted, and he was sent to a maximum security place. Wow. And I hate to think of what happened to that guy. He's the product of a middle-class family who were extremely materialistic, and he just got into some shit that betrayed him, and his life was wrecked. Absolutely horrific. Anyway, he was a member of this household. And, and so this was his, all going on while you were there. And, and all this was going on during the time I was there, yeah. And there was another guy who was a very interesting person. He was misshapen. He had a caved-in chest and really prominent teeth and buggy eyes. And he actually looked like a mask. Anybody would call him ugly, a frightening looking person. And there was one occasion where he and I went together, I think in my car, I'm not sure, to to uh, a sort of a nightclub. And those days, both men and women went to places to dance, meet up with sex partners. That was yeah. it. You went there and you went home with somebody. <laughs> that and, still happens and today. <laughs> I, I arrived with this guy and he he just did not have a good sense of reality about it until after that evening. He said, you know, you try to dance with a girl and she just freezes. Oh. And very understandable. He looked like a monster or something. I mean, he just... He just didn't look like anybody you'd want to go home with at all. Yeah. And I was wearing glasses all the time there on account of the film editing, and I did not look like an attractive guy. And women Because you have glasses on? And I also went there with him. <laughs> right. So we were a pair, and I didn't meet anybody that wanted to go home with me, and I was afraid to ask anyway. But that was an interesting occasion, and uh, he read a book. Books have influenced my life so much. He read a book by Kat Kincaid about Twin Oaks, about the beginning of Twin Oaks. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, he was telling me about it, and he thought he would like to live at Twin Oaks. And I thought, well, I'm going to read that book. I'm not too terribly happy the way I am these days. It's it's basically a country commune. Maybe I would like to live there. I read the book, and I was smitten right away. I knew I was going to have some sort of a future in Twin Oaks. So I went there for the visit, and that's where I told you about Sasha. Yeah. Do you want to relay that story? Sure. I think people will enjoy it. (laughs) Right. Okay. Sasha was a beautiful young woman, quite striking. And she was leading a group of five or six people who were interested in Twin Oaks, maybe to go and live there, but to find out more about it. And Sasha took us around to see things, to see where we ate what it was like to live in a commune. And we went and looked in different buildings to see how people lived, where they slept, what we did about laundry, and how community clothes became a thing. Everybody came there with with a suitcase full of clothes, and most of it wasn't worn. What What you needed to live at Twin Oaks was a pair of jeans and a shirt that could be as dirty or as ragged as you happened to have. You didn't care. Mm-hmm. And everybody dressed like that, and all these clothes that had to do with living in the outside went into a big storage area where there were racks and racks of dresses and skirts and, of course, trousers and jackets and neckties, yeah. all this crap that everybody gave up to come and live at Twin Oaks. And so that was one of the things that we would see in this tour so with was Sasha. It, was it required to give this stuff up, or people just didn't want it? Once Nobody wanted it. I see. You know, you, you want to be comfortable in your clothes. And the life we led usually involved quite a bit of work, hard work. We'll talk about that. But anyway, Sasha took us around to see all of these different things. And I think maybe we met some of the children in that time. So kind of at the end of the tour, it was a beautiful spring day. And we all sat down on the lawn. There was some lawn. And... uh People began asking questions of Sasha. Most of them were practical, having to do with things that we'd seen and questions that had popped into people's minds that they hadn't had a chance to say. Mm -hmm. And so after a bit of a lull, somebody said, well, what about entertainment? What, What can you do to have fun here? You're miles and miles from everything in the middle of the woods. What do you do for entertainment? Sasha paused Rather briefly, I thought. And she said, well, we fuck a lot. <laughs> and uh, this this was met with stunned silence. <laughs> Nobody expected her to say that. And she was, as I said, a very striking, beautiful woman. And and the, the males in the group were undoubtedly taking account of, of this. <laughs> I was, for sure. So I went away from Twin Oaks after that visit thinking that uh, my relationship problems would receive a nice infusion, perhaps, if I would go to Twin Oaks. And I was interested in the fact that it was was a sharing of effort and a sharing of commitment to make a community of people. And I thought that that would be incredibly rewarding. Between one thing and another, I did make a decision to move to Twin Oaks. And it turned out to be a fascinating time in my life. Very, very rewarding and influential in terms of the way I think about things and so forth. And we can talk about that another time. Okay. 
How's that for a cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good cliffhanger. <laughs> yes, I have all kinds of questions about Twin Oaks and stories that I'd like you to tell. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get to that next time. I don't know if you remember last time I asked you what you're listening to. What are you listening to these days? In the middle of the night, I still favor Anna Vidovich uh, playing the classical guitar. She is such a wizard. She can play extremely complicated things, and she can play extremely soft, beautiful things, and she gets the most out of everything she does. I think she's a wonderfully musical person, and uh, her technical accomplishment is Segovia. She's the same. Do you have a favorite song of hers? Oh, she does so much stuff. She, she does plays? Bach. She does uh, a, c- a couple of my favorite things from her are by Mauro Giuliani. Uh, he's something called the Grand Overture of Mauro Giuliani. And also he does a grand sonata. And they're grand. <laughs> they're big pieces. And she does them and she does them fantastically well. She does many, many Spanish things, but she also does Bach, Scarlatti, and I, I like all of it. So that is my favorite place to go in the middle of the night when I'm having a bad night. I can't sleep. Mm-hmm. I get up and I have a mouthful of peanut butter and sit down and listen to music. And a recent discovery is this young man, Alexander Malif- Malifoyev. Malifoyev. I'll have to see it written down <laughs> to, get it, to get it right. But he's a Russian kid. I think at this point, he's 18 years old. He plays like Horowitz. His fingers just fly over the keyboard. And he's much admired. I think he won the uh, Tchaikovsky competition in Russia when he was 13. Wow. It's an international competition. <laughs> he's just a, a little kid. He's a little blonde kid. And there's an interview. And somebody asked him how much he practiced. He said, oh, 10 or 12 hours a day. <laughs> Imagine at age 13. Yeah, it reminds me of Glenn Gould, who, when he was a kid, his punishment was, if he was bad, you can't practice the piano for two hours. (laughs) 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 And uh, so I think this, this boy's like that. And he said his aspiration was to be known among the greats. Horowitz, Paganini. Sounds like you will. Yeah. So next time we'll talk Twin Oaks. We'll get to the hippie years next time for sure. Okay. Did you grow your hair long? Yeah, and I you grew, did. I grew a beard. <sighs> I've never I seen a, you I with a beard. Your beard. For some reason, my beard didn't go down like that. So it laid on my chest. It grew straight out. And it was stiff. <laughs> was it ever strange? It was so peculiar. I, I shaved it off. I've never done it since. It was terrible. <laughs> so we'll get into that next time. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends. Leave us a kind review, perhaps. Some stars. Dad, thank you for sitting down with me. Oh. Great to hear everything. And it was very great pleasure for me, too. <laughs> it was a huge relief to me when they eased restrictions a little bit. So I'm able to see you and Mary. There was one day we came here and I couldn't give you a hug goodbye and it just didn't feel right. <laughs> so glad I'm allowed to hang out with you again. <laughs> I like it too. So thank you for coming on and thanks to everybody for listening. And remember, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> see, that was great. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.